Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. If you would, please turn in your Bibles again to the book of Romans. And uh, if you... We have uh, more of the outlines of the book of Romans outside uh, uh, there, outside the doors of the auditorium, so if you need that. And um, we are into our third message now on grasping the gospel from the book of Romans. And, and uh, as I kind of feared, it's getting harder because we're getting larger chunks of the book. So last time was only about 16 verses, and I barely managed to finish. So you pray for me that I'll get done and that we'll be able to, to get through this, and it'll be a blessing to us. Um, the message, uh, this message is entitled, the need, the need for the Gospel, Romans 1, 18 through 320. And I'm sure that you have heard this uh, saying before, before you can get someone saved, you have to get them lost. And uh, I'm not sure about exactly the way we express that, because we don't really get them lost, and we don't get them saved, right? The Lord gets them lost, and the Lord, uh, they get themselves lost, and the Lord causes them to realize they're lost, and then, uh, and then he saves them. But there is a, a really important truth here, and the Apostle Paul, in the section we're going to be dealing with here, is going to be demonstrating to us the universal need for the gospel, so let's start here in verse 17 of chapter 1. In fact, I'm going to start at verse 16, even though it's not on the slide, because it really, uh, remember verse 16 is the theme of the book. And it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And then verse 17, For in it, that is in the gospel, in the gospel, the, right, uh, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And I believe that this verse 17 is the, um, is the theme verse for the first major section of the book of Romans. After the introduction. And then verse 18, which we will focus on this evening, is, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of the gospel. We pray, Lord, that we would be submissive to the truth that you have for us. Uh, we know that in order to understand the good news, we have to know what the bad news is. We also acknowledge and uh, realize that uh, anyone who's ever come to Christ has had to realize that he or she was a sinner and that we were under the condemnation of God. We know that this happens in different ways, through different media, and that uh, you work in different people's hearts and personalities in a different way. But we do know that we all have to come to the place where we submit to what you say about us and that we're, we desire to come to Christ for the, the justification that we so desperately need. And I pray that this would be a memory that we have that would be an encouragement to us to have compassion on the lost, realize that people are in a position where they are in desperate need of Christ, whether they realize it or not, and pray that you would open hearts that people would come to know Jesus Christ, that they might be justified by faith in him. Help us, Lord, this evening to be uh, like you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, as we get into these verses here, and of course we're actually going to be looking all the way down through chapter 3, verse 20, although I will not be reading all those verses and certainly won't be expounding all those verses. My goal here 
is for us to get a sense of the overview of this passage, this section, and see how it's functioning together so that as you study it, it can be something that will be a help and an encouragement to you as you seek to understand and apply the gospel to your own life and be a witness in the lives of others. So the first thing I want to do here is talk about where are we in the outline of the book of Romans. So if you have your outline of the book, I don't mean the outline for this evening, which is in your bulletin, but the outline of the book that we handed out and uh, have made available to you. Notice here the main sections of the book of Romans. Uh, One is introduction, which goes from chapter 1, verse 1, through verse 16. Then section 2, and this is the section we will be in, the gospel reveals the only way to be right with a righteous God. And I was really debating what to do with this section because I thought, well, um, it really does hang together. It really goes together as a section. But the problem is it's very, very hard uh, uh, to get through all of that material in one session. So in a sense, we're going to be doing this in two parts. So uh, what we see here under number two is there are two subpoints. The first one is that the gospel reveals God's righteous judgment against sin. That's verses 118 through 320. And then the gospel reveals God's righteous justification of sinners. That's Romans 321 through chapter 4, verse 25. And so this evening, we're going to be focusing on A, the gospel reveals God's righteous judgment against sin. Now, I need to make a couple of points here. I remember, uh, you know, a a story, a joke that used to be told by former President Ronald Reagan back during the Cold War in the 80s when uh, Mikhail Gorbachev was the um, Secretary General, I think, of the Communist Party, the President of the Soviet Union. And So President Reagan used to tell this joke. Uh, He said that there was an American arguing with the Russian about their various forms of government. And the American said, well, I want you to know we have political freedom in this country and we have freedom of speech. And uh, Russia says, well, we do too. And the fellow says, well, you know what I can do? I can go down to Washington, D.C. and I can go into the White House and I can go in the Oval Office and I can say to President Reagan, President Reagan, I don't like the way you're running the country. And the Russian says, well, I can do that too. I can go down to the Kremlin and... I can walk into the office of uh, President Gorbachev and I can say, President Gorbachev, pound on the desk, President Gorbachev, I don't like the way Ronald Reagan's running the United States. (laughs) And this illustrates something really important. (laughs) It's very easy to hear criticism of other people, right? In other words, it's, it's, I think there are a couple things that are not so hard for us. One thing that's not so hard for us is to acknowledge that we are not perfect. Right? In fact, you're sort of expected to acknowledge you're not perfect because if you thought you were perfect, you would be proud. Right? There was even that song, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. Uh, that's a long time ago. And, um, and it's, pretty, it's, it's pretty acceptable to say, yeah, I've got some, I've got some flaws. Um, another thing that we can do is we can listen to the detailed description of other people's problems and sins and we can then either look down on them or we can, um, we can feel sorry for them. But one thing that's really hard to do is listen to specific criticisms of ourselves. And um, it's interesting that what Paul does in this, this section of the book is he gets specific with some things. And um, I think that's really important when we under- to, to understand the gospel. You see, we need to confess our sin, that we are sinners, but, but there's a sense in which there is benefit when we come to Christ in confessing our sins. Now, what I mean by that is not trying to think of every single thing we ever did. But the point is, sin is manifested in sins. 
And it's very easy for me to just acknowledge something in principle, right? Husbands, you know, it's like this. Uh, okay, uh, you know, yeah, should, should, should I be a little bit more considerate of my wife? Yeah, I think I should be more considerate of my wife. But it's things like, you know, when you leave your socks around the house, right, that's inconsiderate. And the problem with that is, I, if that's the case, then I have to change what I do with my sock. Right? I have to change my life. In other words, it's something very specific about me. And it's harder to accept that. And as human beings, we don't like that. But if we're to understand that God is, is justifies the ungodly through the gospel, then we have to know that we need it. Right? If you're not ungodly, you're not eligible for the gospel of Christ. So, so in this passage, Paul says some tough things. And we have to be willing to listen to what he says and have a humble spirit. And so I think we'll, under, we'll see that a little bit better as we, as we go along. Now, as you notice from those verses, it's, it sort of sounds like a courtroom. Paul is like indicting humanity. And you can see that quality in this, uh, in this passage if you actually look at some key word groups in Romans 1, 8 through 320. So what are some key words or groups of words? Well, there are some words, uh, there's, a, there's a group of words that, there's the word for God, theos, and, or, or derivations of that, like godly or ungodly. And that group of words occurs 33 times. That's the most common group of words of any significance, other than articles and things like that. Okay, so obviously this is about God and what God does, and that makes perfect sense. But then you also have the word law, and it's cognates, and that occurs 25 times. So law is really important in this section of Romans. Also, you have the words that are translated just, justice, punishment, that group of words. And those groups, that group occurs 17 times in the passage. Then you also have judge and judgment, a different group of words in Greek, but they are often translated as to judge or as a noun judgment, and that's 15 times. And then all or every, it's interesting, is 13 times. Because what we're going to find is that this is uh, Paul's universal condemnation of humankind. And then finally, know or knowledge. And that's nine times. And that's really significant because we're talking about accountability. Paul is really strenuous here in dealing with the issue of accountability. How everyone is accountable uh, to God. So these are the things, these are the sort of the word groups, and they reinforce the idea that it's almost like we're sitting in a courtroom and Paul is making his case as the chief prosecutor and everyone is in, um, as, they used, as they say in England, in the dock, right? Everyone is the defendant uh, in this, uh, in this uh, uh, argument, okay? So what do we learn here? Well, I think one of the things we learned, a key point about this whole passage is that fallen human beings are determined to suppress the truth of their own unrighteousness, right? In other words, hum we are incredibly ingenious at figuring out ways to shift the blame or to minimize the blame or to pretend like we don't know about the blame. And so we are determined to suppress the truth of our own unrighteousness. And we'll see that as we go along here, that that's what human beings do. We suppress the knowledge of the truth. God is communicating... He's communicating through his creation, he's communicating through conscience, and he is communicating through the law, uh, uh, through revelation, and human beings are trying their best not to get the message. And I think this is really important. I, I remember back, I was saved as an adult. I had gotten through college, I'd been out of college for a year, and, and I thought I was searching for God. 
But once God found me, I realized I hadn't been searching for God. I'd been running away from God, and God was searching for me. <laughs> the things I was doing was I was kind of parrying him. I was kind of keeping him at arm's distance. He wanted to deal with certain things in my life, and I didn't really want him to deal with those things. I wanted to ask other kinds of questions. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but sometimes when you're talking to someone about the Lord, they start asking all kinds of religious questions, right? But the religious questions go all around here, and you end up way far away from the real point, which is, how are you with God? Where do you stand with God? Right? What about your sin, <laughs> right? We want to argue about uh, theological minutia before we deal with the real issue with, what about my sin? And so, and so I think that that is a pretty universal Paul, uh, in fact, describes it as a universal kind of a human tendency where God is working to get our attention and we are working to keep him from getting it. Okay, work to suppress the truth. However, God in his righteousness and mercy reveals his anger against all human unrighteousness and he removes all of our excuses for it. God in his righteousness and mercy reveals his anger against all human unrighteousness, and he removes all our excuses for it. So I think I got ahead of myself. I'd already got to where we are in Romans. So if you go down to the number two there, I got my slides in a different order than I have the outline. Okay, so um, in this passage, we learn how people um, suppress the truth in unrighteousness and how God shows their sin to them. So go ahead, you can go ahead and fill that in. We learn how people suppress the truth and unrighteousness and how God shows their sin to them. So that's what's going on in this section uh, A here in Romans. So if, if we look at this passage, there's some, something very interesting, which we will note a little bit more in passing. But just to give you kind of a sense of this, if you come down and look at verse 17, I'm sorry, verse 18, I believe that verse 18 is the theme of this subpart that we've been talking about. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then he goes on to show how that is done in different kinds of people. And Paul really, in his day, uh, nat quite naturally, had two kinds of people in mind. There were the Jews and there were the Gentiles. And he starts with the Gentiles. Now, the word Gentile just means the nations. It means all of the nations except for the people that God had chosen to have a special relationship with, to give them his law, and to use them as a vehicle through whom the, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come. So God made that distinction way back in the time of Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob in order to work through this one people in order to be a blessing to all the people. So Paul's going to talk first about the people that have not had this direct kind of contact with God throughout the Old Testament period, and then he's going to talk about the people that have. So that's a natural Division. He spends actually more time talking about God's people than he does about the people who don't, in that sense, have that same relationship with God uh, as nations. So we see that. But in both cases, there's, some, there's an interesting parallel here. And I want to show it to you so you get a sense for what's going on here. The first one is that um, in verse 20, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but Paul says, For since the creation of the world... His, that is God's invisible attributes, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. And now this is really the point of what Paul is saying. So that they are what? In verse 20. Without excuse. 
The point of Paul's dealing with sin here in the last part of this chapter is to help us understand why people who sin without having had the direct revelation of God's Old Testament, how they're still accountable to God, how every human being, therefore, is accountable to God for their sin. Everyone is accountable to God because he has made known some things to them, therefore they are without excuse. And then you see what goes on here. Look at verse 20. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. In other words, there is this suppression, this suppressing of the knowledge of who God really is. And then when you come down to the end of this uh, first part here, you see in verse 32, who knowing, knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those that practice them. So here we have again this idea that people know. People know. Now it's quite interesting when you move to chapter 2, he starts talking to people who have had more truth. Primarily I think he's talking to the Jewish people because they had the law given to them. But of course this would apply to religious people today, wouldn't it? Because religious people today, people who have a, a revelation of God, people who have the Bible, right? People that are in Christian denominations of some sort, or another, or, um, that people today, we have access to the truth, and there is a tendency also for us to feel like because we have access to that truth, somehow we're better off than people who don't. So we say those people out there, they're awful sinners, but, you know, hey, listen, I'm a pretty good person. I go to church. And so Paul is going to deal with that kind of person, and, of course, in his day, that had to do with people who had the Old Testament. In our day, we could apply it to uh, other situations as well. But notice what he says in verse, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you are what? Inexcusable, O man, whoever you are that judge. So now he's saying, now you don't have an excuse either. And the point of that is that, is that when you know that someone else is doing wrong, and you know it's wrong, then when you do it, it also is wrong. <laughs> you don't get a pass, right? In other words, you of all people should know that if you sin, you will be judged, Right? And so he's going to deal with this whole issue of hypocrisy. But then go to chapter 3, verse 20. And this is the end of our section. And I want to show you something else here. Chapter 3, verse 20. And he says this. Therefore, he's talking about, uh, he's talking about how, when, when, um, how the law condemns everyone. And, and he says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh, that means no person, no body, will be justified or declared righteous in God's sight. I might be righteous in my sight. I might be righteous in the sight of the law. I never, you know, you might never have gotten even a ticket, right? But in God's sight, you will not be declared righteous by trying to keep the law or trying to do good things because, and this is the reason, by the law or by means of the law is the knowledge of what? Sin. The point of the law is to show us we're sinners. Okay, so it's interesting, in both cases, in the case of the Gentiles and in the case of the, 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 the Jewish people, right? In both cases, you have this idea that they are without excuse because they know. Because they know and, and therefore are, are culpable for their sin. So that's kind of the structure. So we're going to see two parts here now. The first one is that God reveals his righteous wrath against paganism. God reveals his righteous wrath against paganism. 
For the wrath of God, it says in verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and the right. The wrath of God means the expression of God's anger. Now, we know that when human beings express anger, it is usually tied up with some kind of sinful attitude, right? We get angry and we get irritated, or even if we're angry about something that we perhaps should be angry about, some injustice or something like that, human beings have this tendency to be way over the top, don't they? Right? It's not enough just that, the, that, that justice be done. We want vengeance, right? We want to go beyond justice. And especially if someone has irritated us or bothered us. And we tend to be very unrighteous in the expression of our anger. It's very hard for human beings to express anger in a way that is a genuinely uh, godly way of expressing anger. But God is different, right? God does express anger, but God's anger is always in line with his justice, his righteousness, and all of his attributes, including his love and mercy. But, but we don't want to go too far the other way either and imply that God is some kind of cosmic Santa Claus, right? Kind of, kind of getting up there in years and is kind of sitting back in his rocking chair and, you know, the, you know, he says things like, boys will be boys, right? And he excuses sin. I think we have a tendency today to think that God excuses sin. And Paul has got nothing to do with that, right? He doesn't want anything to do with the idea that God overlooks or excuses sin. God is righteous and holy and he hates sin. One question you could ask somebody is, how many sins do you think God would let into his heaven? Right. How many sins did it take to ruin the whole earth? Just one. Right. One sin trashed the whole earth. So how many sins is God letting into heaven? And the answer is absolutely zero. How many sins is he going to tolerate in our lives when we're finally made to be like the Lord Jesus Christ? The answer is none. And when he looks at us in a legal way, he tolerates no sin either. Therefore, that's why we need the righteousness of Jesus put on our account. Because ours will never make it. So, so, so the wrath of God then is revealed from heaven. So he reveals his wrath against paganism. Now the first question is, what is paganism? The word paganism or pagan, uh, it, to our knowledge, first comes into existence around the 4th century. Remember, in, in a, a, a Early in that century, Rome started to become Christian nominally. Constantine said, we're going to follow Christianity, and so a lot of people became Christian. But there were some people that wanted to continue to worship the Roman gods. So they wanted to continue to be polytheists, and they started being called pagans. So paganism is essentially the same thing as polytheism or idolatry. And Paul is going to focus here on idolatry, but I want to use paganism because there is a certain... It's not just the practice that we're concerned about. There's a, there's a heart attitude that I think is at the heart of polytheism or idolatry or paganism. So God reveals his, his righteous wrath against paganism. So, well, let's see, what are the, what's the root of paganism? Well, we see in verses 19 through 22, and I won't read it for time. I'm encouraging you to go along and be reading through these, these, these chapters. But the point is that God, through the creation, reveals... His eternal power and deity, meaning he created it. <laughs> and because of what he made, he reveals his great power. He also reveals that he is God and we are not. And that's the fundamental issue. I remember my former pastor, um, uh, we used to have his, uh, the church there used to have a radio program. And that was back in the days when you had this reel-to-reel -reel recorder. And you had to, you know, you did the reel-to-reel -reel and you talked into the recorder and if you made a mistake, you had to actually take a razor blade out and actually physically cut it and splice it. 
And so he had asked me to do some, some of the radio broadcasts for him and record those and take those down to the radio station. So I found it quite a challenge, but I did some of those. But there was a poster there, and he told me that his sister gave it to him, which I thought was kind of appropriate. And it said two fundamental truths. Number one, there is a God. Number two, you are not him, <laughs> okay? And you know, that really is the issue when it comes to paganism. Because, and, and by the way, you can have a pagan heart and be nominally Christian. Right? What, 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 is, what Paul is saying is that God in the creation of the world shows first of all that he is the creator and that you are the creature. And that should put you in some fundamental relationship with him. It says, for example, I am thankful. I'm thankful you created me. I, it also says I belong to you and you are the master and I'm the servant. So there is gratitude and there is submission. And both of those things, Paul says, are denied by people. Instead of doing that, they say, you know what? I don't like that kind of relationship. I'd rather have a relationship where I have a little more say. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to think of God as being less than he really is. So we start inventing myths about God. God is like this or God is like that. So the, 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 um, the nation started to have many gods, right? And so... The instant you have more than one God, you don't have God anymore with the capital G. And the reason is because now he's got to share time with these other gods, right? Now he's got to sort of, now there can be a power struggle between the gods. There is no absolute supreme being if you have more than one. And so by creating this whole pantheon, now you've also given yourself a lot of leeway here because now you can sort of pick and choose, right? It's like the kids that say, okay, if you want... If you want ice cream, don't ask mom, ask dad. Or vice versa. Usually it's ask dad, right? Because dad wants some too, and then that's an excuse for dad to get some. I, I found that trick a long time ago. And now I got grandkids, and so it's like I get to do this multiple times. It's like, oh, hey, you know, why don't we get some ice cream? And then, of course, granddaddy gets his too. But the point is that, right, mom maybe is more strict, so maybe I can go to dad. And that's kind of the way the pantheon worked. If you're saying praying to this God and it's not really working for you, well, hey, go find yourself one of the other gods and maybe, maybe that God will help you more. Or if you win, win in war and you've got your God is represented by these idols, right? You have these idols and they represent God. And so these idols are, are designed to be able to help you figure out how to get close to God and all, to the gods and also how to get your way with them. So you do various things and then you... So it's manipulative, and, of course, we can be manipulative today. People can be manipulative in the religion today. If I do this and that and the other, then God will. You know, it's like the person that says, Oh, Lord, if you let me win the lottery, I will give half of it to the church. Which is like saying, Oh, Lord, right, let me win the lottery and keep half of it. Right, give me the money, let me keep half of it. I mean, the, the point is that we sort of feel like we can enlist God in our cause. And I remember as an unsafe person, I would go to God when I thought I had, a, you know, I said, I need help, I can't get help, and I would go to God for help. But I would very quickly forget about him, right, when I didn't, didn't have a need. So this is the root of paganism. It's unthankful, ungrateful, and it is changing God, okay? Now, what's the result of paganism? And this is a long discussion, and it's... it's, it's um, it's fraught with issues because it deals with sexual morality and sexual immorality and with homosexuality. And that today is just really tough for believers oftentimes out in the world because people have developed a sexual ethic that is completely contrary to the Bible. Right? And so, and so there, there are a couple of things we need to make sure that we, 
uh, understand, and then there's some things that we should avoid. The first thing we want to understand is, the way Paul presents this is, that, that the result of this changing the image of God, of the true God, right, or changing the glory, excuse me, exchanging the glory of the true God into an image of something in the creation degrades God in our minds. And God, as a partly as a punishment, and I think also partly to get our attention, allows us to degrade ourselves by our own desires. And I'll be very obviously appropriately discreet here, but you do know that, that it's possible to have such a passion for something that you do things to yourself that are really not good for you and that you feel very bad about later and guilty about later. And if you, if you lived as a young person before coming to Christ and you did not grow up in a Christian home or you did not have a lot of restrictions on you or you were off in some secular environment, you probably have some instances in your mind you could remember how you did some things in the heat of passion that, were, that you felt later were even, even later felt were degrading to you and you felt bad about. And, and the point is that God allows that, and I think part of the reason for allowing that is it is, in a sense, a poetic justice that we have degraded him and into an image, and therefore we who are made in the image of God, human beings who are made in the image of God, then end up degrading themselves as well or or are or, or failing to reflect the image of God. The other thing he emphasizes, and this is particularly true when he's dealing with the question of homosexuality, has to do with the whole idea of against nature, that nature or biology teaches certain things, and that there is that, that the, the um, passions that, are, that can arise and that are then promoted by uh, the society are such that they cause people to do things that go contrary to what it, God reveals in his natural order. And again, that goes back to the idea of the fact that people know. People know. Um, the, you know we're in a, in a stage here where the, the whole idea even of two genders is being completely attacked, right? So there's 30 some, 100 and some. In other words, you can be any gender you want to be and any combination you want to be. And, I, and the idea is that once we eliminate the creator as the standard, then we become the standard. But the problem with that is if I have absolute liberty to do whatever I want, then, then I, make it, um, I make it just ordinary and I, I totally remove any, any uh, significance to it. The, um, uh, you know, we say something like this, my, my uh, say someone's sexual orientation or sexual desires or sexual identity, right, is the most important thing about, I feel like that's a huge part of my identity. But our society at the same time treats sexual activity as though it's just something anyone can do anytime for any reason, for whatever they want. So on the one hand, it's supposed to be special, right, to you. On the other hand, it is completely unspecial. And so God designed this aspect of our lives as part of the reflection of the image of God in man, where he made us male and female. And now that whole thing is being, is coming under attack. Okay, so... Um, we need to be careful that we don't let the society dictate to us what is right and wrong. We need to let the Word of God dictate to us what is right and wrong. And, of course, that's not popular, but we have that obligation to God to do that. The other side of it is we have to, and we're going to get into this in chapter 2 here, the other side of it is we need to realize 
that, um, that all are under this condemnation. And that when we start comparing ourselves with other people in particular areas, someone does this and I don't do that, so I feel superior to you. Right? Well, what about this other sin over here? Right? James makes that very clear. Right? If you, um, you're a lawbreaker if you break any of the laws, not just certain of the laws. Right? You're saying, well, I didn't rob that bank. Right? I robbed this bank over here. You know, or I'm better than you because I killed fewer people than you did. You know, we can always find a way to compare ourselves. Okay, so, so the first point is the result of paganism. I just want to mention this uh, quickly. Um, if you want to look through this passage and see what, God is do- what uh, Paul is doing with this, I would suggest you look at this phrase, handed them over or gave them up. It occurs three times in verses 24, 26, and 28. And it shows how when we, when we fall away from a right view of who God is, it has effects both personally morally, and then also socially. So that there, at the end of the chapter, there is a whole long list of evil activities. And the point of this is Paul is giving a list of things that even the pagan philosophers would have said, these things are evil. Because again, his point is not to talk so much about every sin that people commit. His point is that people have a knowledge of the truth and therefore are what? Accountable. Accountable. The real issue here is one of accountability, the main issue. And so I, can, I think I can demonstrate that by pointing to verse 32. It says, who, he's talking about all these people and all the wicked things that people do. And then he says, who, and then he says, knowing the righteous judgment of God. Not only pra- that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. It's like, it's not just that they do them in a moment of weakness, but actually rejoice in it, enjoy it. Now, I have to say, I'm thinking back to before I trusted Christ, and, and I, I was not in a strong moralistic environment. Our church was a, a kind of a liberal church. It was not pressuring us. It really never talked to us about uh, morality in this area or that area. But I still felt guilty for things. And the society was telling us, and that this was back in the 70s when, when things were starting to be become acceptable, right? Behaviors that had been frowned upon before and, and started to become acceptable, but I still felt guilty. And I thought it was people making me feel guilty, right? That person is judging me. I don't remember anyone ever judging me because it was in a very, was in a secular university. It was a very tolerant environment, but I was like, as they say, projecting on people, right? This person is judging me. Well, you know what it really was? It was my conscience is what it was. My, my point is that, my point is that Paul says that they know the judgment of God. Now, these are the same people. These aren't the people who've had the the Old Testament law uh, ever since they were kids. These are just people out in the world. The point is that people have a conscience. Now, we can harden our conscience. We can sear our conscience. We can twist our conscience, but we still have a conscience. And that's sometimes why people get angry when you want to deal with issues of sin, right? Isn't it true that when you're criticized for something that is at least partly true, it makes you matter? <laughs> then if it's something that's not true at all? You know, we, when we feel vulnerable, we get angry. Okay, so that's, that's what's going on with the condemnation of paganism. And I mentioned the key theological concept here is God handed them, or, or God handed them over. The key concept is so that they are without excuse, verse 120b. So you see that the Gentiles are without excuse. 
Now he's going to spend chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3 talking about why people who had revelation, and that day was the Jewish people, today it would include people who grow up in church, why we are inexcusable as well. And I'm going to call that, I'm sorry, why were they without excuse? Because they know, and we already mentioned that. Okay, God reveals his righteous wrath also against legalism. Now when I'm using the word legalism, I'm using it kind of in the very general sense of saying, I think I can be good enough to earn God's favor. Okay? That's legalism. Now, I might need some help, right? I might need some sort of religious instruction. I might need some, some extra help. And I might need some, you know, well, you made a mistake, but you can try again. But at the end of the day, I think I can get to the place where I can please God by being a good enough. Okay? It's just essentially trying to live up. And to do that, though, I also have to suppress truth because the truth is that God is holy and righteous. Right? And he doesn't lower his standard because I want him to. Okay? So the first thing we see is the hypocrisy of legalism. What's the first thing when you begin dealing with someone's sin? What's oftentimes something that they feel immediately the impulse to point out? You are a hypocrite. Right? You're a hypocrite. And um, it is not hypocrisy to have a standard that you don't meet. That's not hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy to pretend like you are. <laughs> That's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is like, is like it, was, it was used for an actor. You're being an actor. You're pretending to be righteous when in fact you are not righteous. We all acknowledge that we don't live up to the standards that we have set for ourselves or that God has set for us. Right? But the hypocrisy comes when you act like you do or want people to think that you do. And so Paul here deals with this hypocrisy in verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 29, and I'm going to break, uh, he says, therefore, in chapter 2, verse 1, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. Now, why are you inexcusable if you judge? It's because if you judge, then you know that God must judge you if you do them. Right? In other words, God is impartial, he doesn't play favorites. But we know, that word know again, right? We know that the judgment of God is according to truth against all those who practice such things. Okay, so as you go down and read through this part of chapter 2, he's dealing with that, and he's especially dealing with the fact that people who had the law and people who had the covenant, that they felt superior somehow because they were part of God's people. And his point is, if you break the law, you're going to be condemned. Right? It's not the person who has the law that's justified, it's the person who keeps the law. And it's not the person who has the symbol of circumcision, but the person who has a circumcised heart that really matters. So there's the hypocrisy of legalism. God's just judgment is impartial. That's verses 1 through 16. Now, and we don't have time to go in detail, but there's some difficult verses here because it sounds like he's saying that if you do right, you will be justified, and if you do wrong, you'll be condemned. And I thought he's saying that nobody's righteous. So why could he be saying that? Well, the answer is nobody is righteous. The point he's making is that God is righteous. God is righteous in his judgment. He's impartial. He doesn't play favorites. He will always judge according to righteous judgment. So that's the point of verses 1 through 16. And then truth brings responsibility. The Jewish people had the law. The Jewish people had circumcision. But that instead of, instead of meaning that therefore you're going to be fine, that meant you have a greater responsibility. Jesus taught this very plainly. He said... If a servant didn't know the way he, he put it in, in, the, in the language of his day, right, in the way people would think of 
relationships in that day. He says if a servant did not know to do his master's will and didn't do it, he would be beaten with a few stripes. But if he knew to do it and didn't do it, he'd be beaten with many stripes. The idea is the judgment is proportionate to the amount of knowledge you had, right? Not proportionate primarily to how much bad you did, but how much light you had, right? It's how much light you reject. So the most dangerous place in the world to be, the most dangerous place in the world to be is to be a lost person in a Bible-preaching church. Because you have a huge, heavy responsibility because you're getting truth, right? You're getting the gospel week after week. And if you reject it, then God will hold you accountable. And that's what Paul is saying here in these verses um, uh, in chapter 2. Okay, but not only is legalism hypocritical, say the hypocrisy of legalism, but we want to talk about the futility of legalism. Legalism doesn't work. (laughs) You can't do it. (laughs) You can't do it. Okay? Not only does it make you a hypocrite, you can't, you can't pull it off because God is righteous. So if you go to chapter 3, he points out, first of all, that God is right to judge his covenant people. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. He says, what advantage then has the Jew, or what is the prophet of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. And what he means is that God talked to them. God's, God sent Moses to them. God sent prophets to them. God gave him his word, and therefore they, ha- they knew the truth. But the point is that if you don't believe when you know the truth, then God will judge, and he's righteous to do that. That's verses 1 through 8. And in the rest of the chapter, he says that the word of God condemns everyone. And here's where you get some of these verses that sometimes we quote when we're talking to people about the gospel. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Meaning we Gentiles. I think what he's saying is, are we better than the Jewish people? He says, not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. So his point is, he's condemning everyone. The the Bible condemns everyone. And then then he quotes these verses from the Psalms. And just listen to what it says. There was none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is one of the passages that we, where we derive the doctrine of depravity, where human beings are fallen and therefore cannot live up to God's standard. Now, it's important to understand, this doesn't mean that God never works in people. This doesn't mean that people never do good things. But what it means is, if you try to stand on your own record, you've got a lot of stuff you've got to give an account for. Right? How many banks do you not have to rob in order to make up for the fact that you robbed one? See, How many people do you not have to kill in order to make up for the fact that you killed one? The point is, when you break the law, you're guilty for breaking the law, and the fact that you're not as bad as somebody else, or the fact that you didn't do it every time, is not an excuse. And so the Word of God condemns us, condemns everyone. So what's the conclusion? Paul says here in verse 20 of chapter 3, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, by trying to do good things... (laughs) No flesh or no human being will be justified or declared righteous in God's sight. 
For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The point of the law is to show us we're sinners. And if you think that the law justifies you, then you've missed the point of the law. You've not really listened to it. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, if you've been in a church like ours for a long time, then you would say, well, I, yeah, I believe that. Yeah, I know that. I, I believe that. But, but what kind of impact does it have on you? Right? The fact is that we are all, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Well, remember Paul, the purpose of Paul's point here. Right? His point is to show us why the gospel of justification by grace through faith is necessary. He's not doing this to leave us where we are. He's giving this to people so that people can, will come to Christ and realize, no, I can't make it. You know, you know, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, some of the people that are the heaviest laden are people that are trying to do it on their own. They're trying to please God with their own righteousness, and they just can't do it. And it's, they're, they're thinking, this is too hard. This is too hard. And God is basically saying, you're right, it's way too hard. In fact, it's impossible for you. You can't please me by trying to do stuff for me. Now, it's true, God wants us to serve him, but we can never serve him until we're declared righteous. You need to be declared righteous first. Then you have the freedom to serve him. See? And so, what is the solution? But now, see, but now, what do you mean now? Now, in the coming of Christ, and then now, logically, after we've established that the law can't justify anybody, now the righteousness of God. See? My righteousness won't make it. Whose righteousness do I need if I'm going to make it with God? I need his righteousness. Right? I need a righteousness that's as good as his. And I'll never have that on my own. Right? I'll never be able to generate that. The righteousness of God, apart from the law, apart from keeping the rules, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That means the Bible. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. To all and on all who believe. Why on all who believe? Because there is no difference. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is the good news. The gospel is available to everybody because everybody's a sinner. right? Jesus Christ came into the world to save what kind of people? Sinners. He says, I come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So what's the application? There's some points I think we can ponder as we uh, go away from here. You must realize that everyone needs the gospel. Everyone needs the gospel. The nicest person you know needs the gospel. <laughs> okay? Right? right? Your grandmother, <laughs> you know, the one that gives you cookies every time, you know, if she doesn't know Christ, she needs Christ. There is nobody exempt from needing Christ. We all need the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? You must realize that God is actively working to show people this need. This is important. I'm not saying that people get saved because of they look at the moon and get saved. Paul says they don't. They suppress the truth. And I'm not saying that they have a conscience and therefore they will get saved because people suppress the truth. But I am saying is suppressing the truth can be hard work. <laughs> it can be exhausting. And when God's Holy Spirit starts to convict, especially you take the word of God to people and God's Holy Spirit starts to convict, that can be power. That the, the point is God is working in people. Don't be afraid to talk to people. God's working in people. And he might use you to work in their lives and prepare for somebody else. But God is actively working, and you must realize that he is preparing you to help them come to the truth. Why are we studying Romans? Well, so we can appreciate our salvation 
but also so we can take the salvation to others. Right? God is working. God is working in a powerful way. And let's pray that God will so grip our hearts with the truth of his gospel and that we would be an effective witness for him. Now, next week, next week, we get more good news than bad news. Okay, so thank you for being patient. Let's pray.